Wages of Fear began life as a novel published in 1950 by Georges Arnaud. Georges Arnaud began life in 1917 as Henri Girard. He grew up amid wealth and comfort on a spoiling chateau in Dardogne in southwest France. But Henri's privileged life took the first of several very strange turns when, in December 1941, his father, aunt and a female servant were all murdered at the family home. Since Girard's father was a bureaucrat serving the Nazi-backed Vichy government, the initial suspicion was that the resistance were involved. But then the investigation turned its attention on Girard himself and he was placed under arrest for the triple homicide. With the war going on, the authorities understandably had other pressing concerns, so Girard spent the next 19 months languishing in prison on remand before finally facing trial in 1943. The trial itself lasted all but five days and ended with Girard's acquittal. He then came into a considerable inheritance and quickly married, but unable to adjust to the sudden freedom he squandered his fortune and soon found himself in debt. His response was to flee his marriage and his creditors by skipping the country all the way to Venezuela. There he quickly drifted through an assortment of careers ranging from gold prospector and smuggler to truck driver. Research has not yet revealed to me precisely when or why Henri Girard decided to change his name to Georges Arnaud, but it seems likely he did so when leaving France to throw his creditors off the scent. He returned to France later where he published the novel under the pseudonym, while dedicating it to his murdered father. Paradoxical as that sounds, it was undoubtedly Girard's experience as a truck driver that served as the foundation for his plot. The Wages of Fear tells the wretched story of four European exiles holed up in an isolated village in an unnamed South American country. Destitute and desperate to escape from the remote outpost, they grab at a lucrative offer from an American oil company to transport trucks containing the highly explosive chemical nitroglycerin across hundreds of miles of mountainous terrain, all in the quest to quell a blazing inferno on a remote oil rig. The book has been adapted twice to the screen. The first version, from 1953, was directed by Henri-Georges Clouseau. Recognised as a masterpiece in most quarters, it was an enormous hit in France, was awarded the equivalent of the Palme d'Or at the Cannes Film Festival, the Golden Bear in Berlin, as well as the BAFTA for Best Picture. The second version, released in 1977, was made by the Oscar-winning director William Friedkin. What is your profession, Mr. Dominguez? Dominguez. Ice hockey. Read about this place in a travel brochure? I heard it had a healthy climate. Now what you expected? It was exactly what I expected. Arno's novel, translated into English by Norman Dale, is delivered in very terse prose akin to that of American pulp novelists. But there is something more to it than that. Perhaps it is the extreme strain that Arno puts his men through that reminds me, not exclusively of Raymond Chandler or Mickey Spillane, but also Ernest Hemingway. However, given that one of Hemingway's recurring themes was grace under pressure, Arno's plot stands in stark contrast. Even before the trucker's epic journey begins, Arno ignores with ruthless determination virtues such as heroism, camaraderie and compassion and instead focuses with unblinking fascination on cruelty, 
greed, and ultimately, the futility of all human endeavour. And in that respect, The Wages of Fear follows more in the footsteps of another author, B. Tavern, who wrote The Treasure of the Sierra Madre. Just about the only mercy Arno affords his readers is that his story is very brief. It clocks in well shy of 200 pages. But those pages are smeared with an unremittingly cynical and bitter tone that closes with such a pitiless gut-punch ending. You sense that Arno's pessimism was formed by his experiences during and after World War II. Not just personally having been accused of triple homicide, but also the events of the wider world the Holocaust and the dropping of two atomic bombs. And yet, for all its nihilism, Arno's novel proved enormously popular. And upon its release, Clouseau's unbearably tense adaptation connected with audiences around the globe. Put all the blame on the victim. Huh. They're done for, they can't feel it, eh? I'll attend to the reporters. Yeah. I'll attend to the witnesses, too. I don't worry, I'll handle it, right? Oh, boss! Yeah. There's a call from Toronto. It's from Mr. Reiner. Who is it? His mother. Oh, the hell with her. Cut her short. If he dies, we'll call her back. Good. It was Reiner's mother. Yeah. He hasn't a chance. Thank you, Mm. Well, in his condition, that's a break for him. This is the post-war world, inhabited by exiles, migrants and refugees, blown not by the war, but economics. Mario, played by Yves Montand, and Joe, played by Charles Vanel, are both French. Peter van Eyck's Bimba is German, while Luigi, played by Falco Lully, is Italian. In fact, along with English and Spanish, there are five languages spoken throughout the film. Which should perhaps be of little wonder, since the film's complex financing came from several countries. And with all that partnership, post-war audiences will be forgiven for thinking that the film would celebrate international cooperation and unity. Nothing of the sort. Bimba. Luigi. Thank you. Mario. Televiziati. And, uh, Smirloff. Danke dir, Max. No, me hola. You moi. Verfluchte Sauerei. Oh, shut up. It's my dough and my stuff. If you guys aren't satisfied, go home. Se estaba escogido de antemano. Averlo dicho. Yeah, fella, vamos. <laughs> well, now, you four guys I picked ought to be here at 3 o'clock in the morning shop. Sure, I know it would have been better if you'd started earlier. My trucks won't be ready until just before dawn. Now, don't worry about the heat. If you don't stop, the sun won't hurt. Now go on, get some rest. I'll see you later. Just like in the novel, Clouseau and his fellow screenwriter Jérôme Geronimi, who in actual fact was his brother Jean, are in no hurry to get the four men in the trucks and on the road to the burning oil rig. Instead, in a film that runs for two and a half hours, it is not until 50 minutes in that news of the fire reaches a remote town which means before then the film spends its time meticulously detailing the milieu, the characters and the reasons why they can't leave. Described like that, you might think the film was neo-realist. 
people struggling to survive in a poverty-stricken environment. And indeed, Clouseau and his cinematographer Armand Terrard adopt a most dispassionate style of shooting, observing but never partaking in the events. But what separates Clouseau's film from the Neuralist style is his decision to incorporate an image system where what you see is emblematic of something else. Firstly, Clouseau opens on an image of a child casually torturing cockroaches in a muddy street. As an introduction, it was copied by another film that also focuses on cruelty, greed, and ultimately the futility of all human endeavor. Sam Peckinpah's The Wild Bunch. Now about sharing up. Sharing up will be the same as always. Well, me and Tector don't think that he ought to get the same amount. He's just starting out, and this is mine and Tector's opening for a new territory. That's right. And I figure a share to that old goat for watching them horses is damn sure share too much. So we decided it ain't fair. If you two boys don't like equal shares, why in the hell don't you just take all of it? Well, why don't you answer me, you damn yellow-livered trash? Now, Pike, you know damn I don't well. know a damn thing except I either lead this bunch or end it right now. There are other films that share its destructive ending. Another John Huston film, The Asphalt Jungle, Stanley Kubrick's The Killing, Werner Herzog's A Guerrero Wrath of God, and Frank Darabont's The Mist. But curiously, for all its cynicism, it would appear that Clouseau borrowed his image system from a profoundly optimistic and romantic Hollywood picture. Where is Rick? I don't know. I ain't seen him all night. When will he be back? Not tonight no more. He ain't coming. Uh, he went home. Does he always leave so early? Oh, he never. Well, he's got a girl up to the Blue Parrot. Goes up there all the time. You used to be a much better liar, sir. Leave him alone, Miss Elsa. You bad luck to him. Director Michael Curtiz made sure the Casablanca resembled a jail. Cinematographer Arthur Edison lit the sets designed by Carl Jules Vale in such a way that every window, doorway and arch appears to trap the characters in Rick's nightclub. And when the drama does move outside the club to the marketplace, the wooden beams that span the narrow streets cast shadows across the characters as if they were prison bars. And the idea that everyone is an inmate is most visible in that market scene. There, costume designer Ori Kelly not only dressed Ilse in a white blouse with black stripes, but then echoed that design on Rick's tie. You will not find a treasure like this in all Morocco, mademoiselle. Only 700 francs. You're being cheated. Doesn't matter, thank you. Ah, the lady's a friend of Rick's. For friends of Rick's, we have a small discount. Did I say 700 francs? You can have it for 200. I'm sorry I was in no condition to receive you when you called on me last night. Doesn't matter. For special friends of Rick's, we have a special discount of 100 francs. The story had me a little confused. Uh, maybe it was the bourbon. I have some table called some napkins. Thank you. I'm really not in Please, one minute, please. Clouseau did something similar, but took it to a shocking extreme. His exiles wear tattered clothes and struggle to keep them clean. Then into their midst arrives the latest exile, Joe, and when we first see him, he is wearing a pristine white suit. So white, it shines like a silver dollar. But by the time Clouseau finishes with him, Joe will be all but stripped bare and drowning in the blackest of crude oil. Of course, The Wages of Fear is not the only film obsessed with the coveted mineral. 
my life fades. The vision dims. All that remains are memories. I remember a time of chaos. Ruined dreams. This wasted land. But most of all, I remember the road warrior. The man we called Max. Clouseau made another crucial choice that further underlines the harshness of the story. Although the credits proclaim Georges Auric as the composer, highly unusual for the time, the film contains no traditional score. The only music is sourced either through the radio in the cafe or in the trucks. Alfred Hitchcock opted for a similar route when, some ten years later, he went to adapt Daphne du Maurier's The Birds. And just as Hitchcock mixed his diegetic sounds, here Clouseau rumbles and revs the truck's engines so they feel more and more ominous. Although now universally regarded as a masterpiece, not everyone was so impressed when it was first released. An anonymous review in Time magazine denounced The Wages of Fear as, surely, one of the most evil ever made. And even more bewilderingly, almost to the point of incredulity, none other than François Truffaut eviscerated the film and Clouseau as representative of everything he deemed wrong with French cinema. That denunciation came in Truffaut's landmark essay from 1954, A Certain Trend of French Cinema. There he tore into Clouseau, dismissing him as typifying le cinéma de papa, the cinema of old men. Which only goes to show that even the most intelligent of minds can get it woefully wrong. Very professional. We'll get it to the capital, maybe we'll get some results. The government's been told it's an accident. What? Odds in this country, terrorists who blow up American oil wells are heroes. We're paying that government to give us protection. Well, President, you cannot risk his liberal image by sending his troops to chase patriots. Shit. Another person who got it woefully wrong was William Friedkin. Having won an Oscar for directing The French Connection and then traumatised audiences with The Exorcist, he decided to undertake a fresh adaptation of Arnaud's novel. Everyone thought it an act of hubris. Everyone, that is, except Arnaud himself, who famously loathed Clouseau's adaptation. So he sold the film rights to Friedkin, who retitled the story Sorcerer and relocated the action to the Dominican Republic. The project was initially budgeted at $2.5 million, but the production ran so far out of control that it ended up costing almost 10 times that amount. Mauled by the critics upon its release, Sorcerer barely mustered $9 million worldwide. In other words, Freakin's effort unwittingly came to define the futility of human endeavour. <laughs> <laughs> 